We are in, of course, Mark chapter 8, which, as I've been hinting at uh, so far in this series, is my favorite chapter in the book of Mark. And I have been looking forward to getting to this chapter for quite a while. Uh, It's kind of like eagerly anticipating the day when we can get there. (laughs) And we are finally here. Mark chapter 8 is a chapter which I considered not only sort of the keystone, the most important chapter of this gospel, but I would also say that it's one of the most significant chapters in your entire Bible. Uh, Not only does does it contain that remarkable confession of Peter as Jesus is the Christ, but I actually think the whole chapter hinges on the story that we read during our scripture reading, which is the story of the healing of the blind man from Bethsaida. It's sort of an obscure story, just in the sense that it's just another quote-unquote run-of-the-mill miracle in Jesus' ministry. It doesn't appear as if it is any different than anything else that Jesus has already done. It appears as he's just healing another blind man, just giving another man his life back, his sight back. And yet, what I want you to see this morning is that there's a lot more going on in this story than just Jesus healing a man who could not see. So look at it again, verse 22. These friends, they bring this blind man to Jesus and it says they besought him, they besought Jesus, they begged him to touch him. They had obviously heard of Jesus' healing powers. Again, remember where Jesus is. He is in a place that is in Gentile country and he is in a place in which... Many people are surrounding him that are questioning not only his means but his methods. And here he uh, is approached by these friends to uh, heal this man. Perhaps they knew of Jesus' healing power from some of the other messages that he taught. But they perhaps didn't know fully who Jesus was. But nevertheless they knew that he could heal their friend. So then notice what Jesus does. Again look at verse 23. Because it says, he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes, he put his hands upon him and asked him if he saw aught. And he looked up and he said, I see men as trees walking. Again, if you remember from chapter 7, which we just covered last week, he repeats sort of the same pattern in the sense that he is taking the man out of the town, out of the way, sort of to a secluded private area in order to heal him. You remember at the end of chapter 7, he does that with the deaf man. And he does it again here. He takes him out of the way. And that's not only the odd detail that I want you to see in this healing. There's a couple others too. Because this healing of this blind man from Bethsaida is exclusive to Mark's gospel. You won't find it in any of the other accounts from, from John or Luke or Matthew. It's exclusive to Mark's presentation of Jesus Also, too, what we just mentioned, that he takes him out of the way, takes him into a secluded area. Again, I think it's, uh, he's doing a lot more than this, but I think one of the reasons, too, is, of course, that he's trying to make it so there's not a lot of hubbub going around around this miracle. He wants to isolate it. He wants to keep it sort of in-house, so to speak, and get out of the publicity. But it's also, if you notice in verse 23, just like the healing of the deaf man from the end of chapter 7, it's another very tactical, or tactile, excuse me, miracle in the sense that he's spitting and touching this man with his hands. He's not just speaking words, he's using his hands in order to heal him. He's, uh, he's uh, going right where this man is in his blindness in order to heal him from his blindness. 
But one of the most incredible things, incredible details about this sermon, did you catch it? Is that he heals this man in stages. He doesn't heal him right away. He's healed in stages, which I think is so fascinating to me. Not only because almost every miracle up to this point has been, uh, has been followed by Mark's uh, favorite word, which is straightway or immediately, giving the idea that Jesus says those words and the person that he heals is healed immediately. But here, that doesn't happen. He puts his hands on him. He spits on the ground and puts his hands on him as he says in verse 23. And he asked him, what did he see? He said, I see men as trees walking. Of course, this isn't a reference to the Lord of the Rings. He doesn't see ants walking around. It's actually just the fact that he doesn't have clear vision. I can uh, really uh, resonate with this man because I'm wearing contacts this morning. But when I have my glasses on and I take them off, you too are like trees walking around. <laughs> very blurry and I cannot make you out. <laughs> uh, but that's just because I was blessed with very, very pitiful eyesight. Uh, but that's okay. Um, so I really resonate with this man. I know what he's talking about. I too, when I take my glasses off, see men as trees walking. But notice what happens. He put his hands again upon his eyes. A second time. He puts his hands on him. And then it says he was restored. And he saw every man clearly. It's a gradual miracle. A miracle that happens in stages. Why does Jesus do this? Why is, is Jesus not going with his normal routine of saying a few words and giving this man his sight back instantaneously? What's going on here? What's Jesus doing? Well, it's as I am like to do, I'm reading commentaries on perhaps what people think about this passage. Some commentators suggest that perhaps there's this lack of faith, or they, one commentator termed it a slowness of faith on, on either the part of the man that is blind or on the part of his friends. And so Jesus heals him slowly in order to uh, sort of accommodate this man's slowness of faith. Again, I don't think that's what he's doing. I don't think Jesus is accommodating this man's perhaps lack of faith by healing him slowly. I don't think he's, he's pinning this man's hopes of healing on his faith or his friend's faith either. He's not pinning it on the shoulders of those who brought him to Jesus for healing. He's not pinning all that healing on their shoulders. Doing so sort of ignores, I think, the larger context of the chapter. Ignores the story of what's going on. Because you see, despite this miracle happening in relative seclusion, in privacy. I think this miracle is actually way more inclusive than what meets the eye. Jesus is not just healing this man's blindness. I would even go so far to say that healing this man's blindness is not really the point of the story. Which isn't to say, it's not to dismiss this amazing miracle that's going on in this man's life. Yes, this man was healed miraculously. His life was changed from this point forward. But really, that's a secondary point to what Jesus wants to do here. That takes a back seat to what Jesus wants us to see and wants us to understand. Not only about himself, but about ourselves as well. Jump back with me earlier in the text. Go to verse 11. 
Because you see, Jesus has come uh, across the sea, and he's now in, a, in an area. Oh, look at verse 10. It says, in straightway, he entered into a ship with his disciples and came into the parts of Dalmanutha. So he's gone from Decapolis. He's gone back to the east side of the, uh, excuse me, the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And he's here, and he's immediately approached by, guess who, the Pharisees again. They come forth. Look what it says, verse 11. And they began to question with him, seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him. And it says, and he sighed deeply in his spirit. (laughs) They come to Jesus. They're clamoring for something to show them, something dazzling, some display of something divine, something heavenly. Give us a sign. Give us a mark, Jesus, that you are the Son of God, that you are this Messiah that you claim to be. Give us a sign that you are who you say you are. Essentially, they're saying, give us proof. We want proof of this. Perhaps they're looking for Elijah's fire or Samuel's thunder or some uh, amazing otherworldly thing like that. But of course, their intentions are deeply known, as it says in the text, that they're really just tempting him. It says in verse 11 that they're seeking from him a sign tempting him. Their intentions are obvious. They're not genuine in what they're after. They're, they're actually looking again, as, is, as has been their pattern so far throughout all of Jesus' time on earth. They're seeking to discredit him. Seeking to disavow his ministry. Such is why Jesus sighs deeply in his spirit. He lets out a verbal sigh. <sighs> Frustrated. Frustrated again that these guys aren't getting it. They're not following with what he has been preaching for so long already to this point. And yet they're again requesting a sign. Give us, give us an indication of who you are. And he's frustrated. And he rejects their request immediately. Look what he says. He says, why does this generation seek after a sign? Verily I say unto you, there shall be no sign given unto this generation. And he left them. (laughs) And entering into the ship again, departed to the other side. So he's just come across. He's approached by by these Pharisees again, questioning him and questioning his ministry. And he gets so frustrated, he goes back to the other side. Goes back again, crosses the sea yet again. And I I love how it says he just leaves them. Leaves them with no sign. Leaves them with no answers to their questions. And in fact, he probably stirred up more questions when he left, when he said that, uh, that he, why does this generation seek after a sign? But he just leaves them. He leaves them there. But why does he do that? Because he was frustrated by their persistence for signs, especially since, if you remember from the early parts of this chapter, verses 1 through 9, we have another incredible miracle, which uh, I, I hasten to go through, but it's uh, the miracle of feeding the 4,000. We've already seen Jesus feed 5,000. Here is another indication of Jesus meeting the needs of all the people around him. And in fact, meeting the needs of Gentiles. And here he does it by feeding a crowd of 4,000 people. I want you to notice one question at the beginning of this text that I want you to keep in your mind. During this feeding of the 4,000, look at verse 4. They have been teaching for many days and they have no food, no way to feed this crowd. And it says in verse 4, his disciples, from whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness? 
Again, if you remember from the feeding of the 4,000, this is another instance of the disciples uh, just throwing up their hands at the impossibility of what Jesus has told them to do. He has told them, go see if you can feed them. And they're saying, how can we do this? When can a man feed these men with bread in the wilderness? And Jesus, I think, knowingly, with maybe perhaps a wink and a smile, he said, how many loaves do you have? (laughs) And he goes on to show them just what a, quote, man can do. Extending the seven loaves of bread to feed 4,000 people. And yet here the Pharisees again come to him. Requesting another sign. Requesting another dazzling display of power. And he rejects the request. He goes over the sea again. Look at verse 13. He leaves them. And he enters into a ship, and such is where we get this fascinating scene in which Jesus tries to teach his disciples some very, very, very crucial doctrine. You notice I said try, and I said that intentionally, because his disciples were a pretty dense group of guys. They're not these high and lofty scholars that we like to think they are. They are actually uh, uneducated men, uh, very ineloquent at times. And it's so interesting that God uses these very men to go and preach the gospel later on after the resurrection. But notice, notice these guys. Look at verse 14. This is an interesting verse. It sets the stakes for this scene. Because again, remember, they're crossing the sea. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread. Neither they in the ship with them more than one loaf. And he charged them, Jesus is charging him, teaching them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. So he's taking this opportunity, not wanting to let a moment pass by in which he's trying to teach his followers. And he says, Take heed, watch out. Watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. Watch out for what they proclaim. He's indicating again that their doctrine is like leaven. It's poisonous. You put a little leaven and it leavens the whole lump. Their doctrine is infectious. It's corruptive. It's poisonous. All of their teaching surrounds a quote secular Messiah. A Messiah who would come and either enact societal reform. Or a Messiah who would come and overthrow political regimes. Herod, of course, was nervous about this. The Pharisees, perhaps, were excited for it in some respects and also cautious. And Jesus is saying, their religion is like leaven. It's poisonous. It's dangerous. Do not uh, get caught up in their gospel because it's a false gospel. He's cautioning them against this secular religion because he wants them to see, again, as he's been showing everyone so far... His kingdom would be different. The kingdom that he would come and establish would be far different than anything that they would ever imagine. Why? Because he was come. He was incarnated to usher in a kingdom of redemption from sin by himself dying. Way different than what they thought. Way different than what they thought that he was going to establish. And again, such is what he's trying to encourage his disciples to see. Watch out for their doctrine. Take heed. But notice, I love the next verse. Because what are the disciples thinking about? And they reasoned among themselves. It is because we have no bread. They're thinking about their bellies. 
My kind of guys, they're thinking about food at all times. We don't have enough bread to eat. We only have one loaf of bread and we're crossing the sea. And Jesus is talking about leaven. I wonder if they were thinking that the bread that they had was perhaps uh, tainted or poisoned. Because Jesus is talking about leaven. Uh, It's only because we have no bread. (laughs) They're worried. They're flustered. (laughs) They're flustered about the fact that they only have one loaf of bread. Which is pretty remarkable if you remember what they just saw. (laughs) What they were just witnesses to of 4,000 people being fed with seven loaves. And here's 12 guys worrying about one loaf. But yet, they're worried. And notice Jesus' patience. And when Jesus knew it, when Jesus knew their hearts, knew their thoughts, knew their worries, he said unto them, Why reason ye because ye have no bread? Perceive ye not yet, neither understand? Have ye your heart yet hardened? Having eyes, see ye not? And having ears, hear ye not? And do ye not remember? When I break the five loaves among five thousand, and how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? They say unto him, twelve. And when, he, and when the seven among four thousand, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? And they said, seven. And he said to them, how is it that ye do not understand? He is interrogating them. He's reminding them of of several months of ministry. Reminding them of what they've seen. How is it that you do not understand all the things that you have been made privy to? How is it that you do not get it? How is it that you do not see what you have seen? You've witnessed it, but you haven't really seen it. The disciples are like deers in headlights at this point. (laughs) Wide eyes, not really tracking with what Jesus is trying to show them. Did we miss something, Jesus? It's just bread. We don't have enough of it. (laughs) Jesus. This isn't in the text. But I imagine Jesus letting out another sigh of the Spirit. (sighs) Frustrated, perhaps with the disciples' continued density to not get what he's trying to teach them. You can hear Jesus saying this. How is it that you don't understand? It's almost as if he's saying this. Are you so blind Are you so blind that you cannot see me? And such is the backdrop for this healing of the blind man of Bethsaida. Because he leads this blind man outside of the city to illustrate an incredibly crucial truth for his disciples and for us. Notice again verse 22. And he cometh to Bethsaida, and they bring him a blind man unto him, and he besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands upon him, he asked him if he saw aught. And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. There's a theme that you have to keep in mind throughout the scriptures, which equates sight and and seeing with understanding or with belief. That those with sight are the ones who are faithful, that see and they understand That's why it says in Hebrews chapter 12, to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. But conversely, obviously, those who are without sight, the blind, are those who are without understanding. Those who are unfaithful, they don't see clearly because they can't see. Such is why Jesus, in Matthew chapter 15, uh, in the parallel passage to Mark chapter 7, he calls out the Pharisees as being blind leaders of the blind. 
He's indicating their spiritual position, which is they cannot see. They do not see me. So you see how this blind man here is serving essentially as a representative of the disciples themselves. Jesus is using this man as another flesh and blood, a living parable for the disciples to see themselves as the blind man. Who have witnessed countless upon countless miracles. Listened to sermons after sermons and they still don't see Jesus. They see him but he's still a little bit blurry. Like a tree walking. (laughs) They see him but they don't see him. They don't see him clearly that is. It's almost as if they're squinting at Jesus, trying to see him. They don't see him for who he is. And such is Jesus' heart here. His concern is not necessarily just for the blindness of this man's life, but for the blindness of his apostles' hearts. That they had been around him, in fellowship with him, but they didn't understand who he was or what he was doing. Because just as this blind man was not able to see clearly after Jesus' first touch, the disciples did not see Jesus clearly. They saw him vaguely, out of focus. They lacked the clear vision to see who this Jesus was. They knew he was a man. Remember from earlier in the chapter? From whence can a man satisfy these men with the bread here in the wilderness? And Jesus, I I surmise he's thinking, yeah, you can't. But I'm not just a mere man. I'm more than that. And the disciples couldn't see it. Like the scribes and the Pharisees, they were attracted to signs. They were attracted to these things that they could see with wonder. Yet they couldn't see through them to get to the point that Jesus was trying to make. And so Jesus is taking this man by the hand as if to answer his own question. His question in verse 21 is, how is it that you don't understand? It's almost as if he's taking this man and saying, here, let me show you. And he heals him and he says, this is you. You see me, but you don't see me. You think you know me, but your vision is blurred. I'm reminded, or I have to ask myself, how often I cry out for signs and wonders to give me evidences of God's plans. Just like these Pharisees, just like these disciples had done unknowingly perhaps. How often do we, like Gideon, try and fleece God, test God to demand more confirmation of what God says is true? I'm reminded a couple of months ago, there was this famous evangelical pastor who, as everyone says now, he went on to his social media feed and he went viral for posting a string of messages in which he denounced the faith. A Christian of 40 years, a pastor of 20 years, and here through a string of Twitter posts, he has completely rejected his faith and his ministry and his Christianity as a whole. It was one of the saddest strings of messages I've ever read. It was excruciating. And in it, you know what he objected to? A lack of miracles. 
He didn't see dead people rising or he didn't see people being healed from their afflictions. And he becomes so burdened by it that he ended up being so disillusioned by the gospel that he claimed to preach that he ended up rejecting it. It saddens me to this day. And I can't help but think of this scene. Whenever I remember that, that sad pastor who has rejected the word, you know what I think of? I think of Jesus here. Why does your generation seek after a sign? Because <laughs> the fact is, the fact that he was showing his disciples, he was God's sign. Jesus was all of the evidence they would ever need that God was not un- indifferent or uncaring or aloof from this world. He was all the evidence they would ever need that God is for them. The Pharisees didn't see it. They couldn't see through his scandal and how he was completely upsetting the religious system of the day. The apostles couldn't see through it because they couldn't see what Jesus was really trying to do. And here he's trying to show them and say to them, this is who I am. I'm not just a mere man. I'm God in the flesh. I'm God come down. I've come to be a part of this world to redeem it and remake it through my passion and through my death. Just like that pastor, dissatisfaction with that Christ. The Christ of redemption is a surefire way to put yourself on a trajectory of unbelief. And here, Jesus is affirming again. He's not a mere man. He's not just a great speaker. He's not just a good teacher. He's not a political figure. He's not a life coach. He's not a magical genie. He's not a humanitarian who just seeks to help those who are helpless. He is God. The confession that Peter makes in verse 29, this is what he's been trying to get them to say the whole time. He's been leading up to it. He's been trying to get them to say that I am the Christ. He's been wanting them to confess that throughout his entire ministry. And you have to see this this confession for the momentous occasion that it is. Peter says, thou art the Christ. After Jesus prods him a little, after Jesus pokes it out of him. It's the first mention of the name and the title Christ. In the gospel of Mark since the opening verse. Mark has been doing that on purpose, referring to him as Lord or Son of Man or Son of God for an intentional purpose because he wants you to see that when this is connection is made to this Son of Man, this scandalous teacher from Galilee, that it upsets everything. At least everything that the Pharisees had come to know and believe about this man, about this teacher. Because his disciples finally get it, or at least part of it. As we'll see next week, they don't get it clearly. (laughs) But Peter confesses, thou art the Christ. This man Jesus, he's not just another man. He's all that God wants us to know about himself. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. As Paul later writes in Colossians, he is the express image of God in bodily form. 
He's the fullness of God in the, in the form of human flesh. Whereas John, the apostle, later writes in John chapter 1, he is the word that was made flesh and dwelt among us. Whereas the apostle Peter later writes in his first epistle, he is the grace that comes unto us. This is Jesus. He is our good news. He is our rescuer and redeemer and savior who graciously and tenderly comes to those who are blind and to show us who he is. The savior from all sin and the king of all creation and the redeemer of everyone in the world. And why? I've often asked this question. Perhaps you've been asking it too as we've been leading up to this confession of Christ. Why not just tell them this from the beginning? Why doesn't Jesus just make this his declarative statement at the very outset? And just base everything off of that. Have you ever thought about that? Why not just reveal who he is from the beginning? If you notice at the beginning, there's demons who know who he is. And he silenced them. He says, do not share this with the world. Keep silence. And he muzzles them, it says. Or he, he stops others from spreading this news about who he was. He doesn't hear. He sends him away to his house, it says in verse 26. Neither go into the town nor tell it to any in the town. Why does he do that? Because he doesn't want to just say who he is. He wants to show you who he is. He wants you to see it for yourself. Peter making the confession that he is the Christ wouldn't have as much meaning and emphasis and weight unless Peter had come to that conclusion himself. If he was told that, he would just be reiterating it. But Peter is confessing what he has come to see and know. And he's come to that conclusion here. Yes, after much prodding, after much patience from his beloved Lord. Because he wanted to, see, wanted to show, show the world, show his disciples who he really was. Not just tell them. He wanted them to see and believe. See and understand who he was. And then believe. This is what Jesus is doing, I think, in this text. This is what Jesus is doing, yes, with us here this morning through the word. If you have the Bible in front of you on your iPhone or maybe you have an actual Bible in front of you. You have all of the evidence you would ever need to know that there is a God. You don't need to clamor for more signs and wonders and miracles and amazing acts and epiphanies. This is God's revelation to us. Is the revealing of God himself to us who did not deserve any visit from this God. And yet here we are given word after word that confirms that he is the savior who has come to us. And he wants us to see it. He wants us to know it. He wants us to believe it. That he is the maker who has come to die for all that he has made. He is the creature who has be, the creator who has become a creature, and he is the savior who walked and talked with sinners and who would have them spit on him, and he would be the one that would die for those who are spitting on him. He wants you to see that. The savior who was forgiving people that were crying out for his execution. 
He wants you to see that he is the minister, the one who it says in Mark chapter 10 verse 45, who has come to serve and be the ransom for many, many of whom would betray him. He wants you to see himself clearly. That he is the Christ. God. Full of grace and truth. And the fact that this God is not afraid to get his hands dirty in order to deliver us the ones he loves. He wants you to see that that's the type of God that you have. That's the type of God who loves you. He loves you enough that he is not ashamed to die for those who are already dead in trespasses and sins, as it says in Ephesians, that they might have life. And as he says in John chapter 10, have it abundantly. This is what Jesus has come to do for you. This is what he did for his disciples. Graciously, patiently opened their eyes to who he is. This is what he's doing here for you this morning. Jesus is your sign. Do you see him? Do you know him? Let us pray.